Good morning, friends. Thankful that you're here today to fellowship and together and worship our God together and now hear from him, from his word that was just read to you. I think I've mentioned this to you before, but we're going to be studying all the one chapter letters of the New Testament, one chapter books of the New Testament. We just finished Philemon last week. We're going to spend today and next Sunday looking at 2 John and then uh, 3 John and then Jude and then we'll get to Colossians. And I know some of you are reading Colossians in anticipation of uh, that study, which I'm also looking forward to. Um, but also, I just wanted to encourage you uh, to continue your reading. And if you have to go two rounds of Colossians or two months of Colossians, it won't be wasted time. All right. So it'll, it'll benefit you greatly and our church greatly and will help you in uh, applying the exposition of that wonderful epistle. But today we're going to be studying 2 John and um, what we'll notice here and 3 John, which we cover next, is that the Apostle John is very concerned with truth. Did you pick that up as it was just read to you? Uh, he, he knows, the Apostle John that is, knows that if truth gets twisted, if it gets veiled, if it gets indiscernible, Christians, we are in danger, serious danger. These two very short one-chapter letters, 2nd and 3rd John, are succinct, they're direct, they're clear, and above all, they're inspired by the Holy Spirit to assist us to walk in or live in the truth. Have it be part of who we are and how we live. Truth is important, obviously. Subjectivism is frustrating to all the, those of us who hold to the truth, but subjectivism um, is convenient for those who aren't disciplined enough to stand anywhere. And so truth is important to us. Actual truth, we have to say, is absolute truth. Uh, there's no such thing as subjective truth. That is, what is true for me may not be true for you type of thinking. Uh, unless we're talking about preferences and, and what you like um, in food or sports or whatever, unless we're talking about th that thing, there's no such thing as subjective truth. Even when it comes to doctrinal disagreements between Christians, there is only one truth. Opposing viewpoints cannot both be true. One or the other or both individuals who are debating some doctrinal point are wrong. For example, Calvinism and Arminianism are not both true. Even if your mother-in-law is an Arminian, it's, it's, there's something wrong with either one or the other position. In the same way, premillennialism and postmillennialism are not both true. One or both are wrong. Evangelicalism versus universalism cannot both be true. <laughs> Either we need a specific savior or we don't, right? So they both cannot be true. So we strive hard to make sense of the scriptures that are in front of us using the historical, grammatical, and literal approach to interpretation. We have a scientific method actually for studying the scriptures and coming to 
what they actually mean. We study to discover the Bible's, the biblical author's intent in his writing. And so we do all this because we must have truth. Without it, we're lost. We are lost in a fog of human opinion, drifting between whoever seems to be the better debater, right? You've seen the YouTube debates. Ephesians 4, 13 and 14 speak to this. Until we all attain, Paul said, to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. No, we, we need the truth, don't we? as Christians. And so we study with the assistance of the Holy Spirit to make sense of the revealed word. Week in and week out, we heed Paul's exhortation to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, which was our verse of meditation earlier in the service. Do your best to present yourself. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This is critical. The Apostle John is teaching us here in 2 John that truth is what binds us together. The reason that we gather week after week, the reason that we enjoy each other's fellowship is fundamentally the truth. I won't explain this to you. Without truth, we have no lasting bond. Without truth, our relationships become dependent on common interests like fishing, shopping, sports, etc. Truth, though, is the foundation of all spiritual relationships. If we're going to relate on the most fundamental human point of existence, it must be on truth. Sound doctrine is the test, in fact, of authentic discipleship. If we can't agree on what is sound doctrine, then there is little basis for ongoing spiritual fellowship or partnership between us. And the sound doctrine I'm referring to uh, is the doctrines that are at the core of our faith, not peripheral doctrines that may separate some Christians. John wrote these two letters that are in front of us because there were people who were infiltrating the churches that he administered to who were trying to undermine his teaching and foundational elements of truth that he had been preaching on, teaching on. These were false teachers, and he brought them up for the first time in his first epistle, 1 John, but he's uh, addressing them again here and then again in 3 John because of the seriousness of false teaching. Uh, he, he wrote these two letters because these people were infiltrating the churches that he'd ministered to. They were false teachers who desired to deceive people, primarily for monetary gain or for influence or something of that nature. We see this in our culture as well, don't we? Uh, we, we know some famous pastors who usually find their way to television uh, that are motivated by money, so they strip the truth of its power by accommodating human preferences in order to gain or keep a crowd that will give money to their ministry. One effective way to cause a local church to become ineffective and unproductive in the cause of Christ is to undermine the truth. So if you want to see a 
church that you're attending become ineffective and unproductive in the kingdom of God, introduce falseness or false teaching. This is why we're studying these two letters and this is why it's so important to us at Sun Valley Church. If, if deceivers or false teachers or false doctrine are allowed access to our church, the next step is spiritual drift and loss of God's blessing. And none of us want that, do we? Even if there remains some external appearances of blessing through large attendance or influence, if truth is gone, God's blessing is gone. And I added side note, um, because of the media-saturated society in which we live, the warnings and instructions of these books are applicable to all Christians and all that are available to Christians today, available to us via books, blogs, internet sermons, chats and forums, etc. You must, Christian friend, have discernment. You must have a church that is discerning. Christian friends, we cannot receive the teachings or opinions of so-called author, Christian authors or ministers just because they're popular. In fact, it's prudent to ask the question why they're popular when you give yourself to their teaching. So John here was writing, as you can see in verse 1, to the elect lady and her children. Uh, we're, not, we're not sure if this was actually a lady and her children or if it was a congregation of Christians that John had ministered to. There are good arguments on both sides, uh, but ultimately it doesn't matter because the content, whether it was to an individual lady or to a small local church someplace in Asia Minor, uh, doesn't matter because this is pertinent. It's, it, it's exactly what we're dealing with today. In 2 John, I want to point out two things that John wants us to see. First, I'll teach today and preach today. The second will be next week. But the first is the benefits of a truth-saturated life. The benefits of a truth-saturated life. The second is going to be the results of a truth-saturated life. But today, let's look at the benefits of truth for God's people, the benefits of a truth-saturated life. Why must we be so intent that we pursue, that you pursue truth and nothing but the truth? Well, there are benefits that come with the truth, and I'm going to list them today from the first four verses of this short letter. All right? So let's look at the first in verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. So we can say this, the first benefit of truth is that it unites. It unites. Five times in these four verses, verses 1 through 4, the Apostle John uses this word truth. So right off the bat, we know that truth is going to be the theme of this letter. And the truth that John is referring to is not just mental or academic truth and those forms of truth. No, John is referring to truth that actually affects or impacts our daily lives, how we live, how you treat your neighbor, how hard you work, how you treat your children, etc. Um, and how do we know this, that this is what his focus of truth is? I want you to look at verse 6 real quick. 
He said, and this is love that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment just as you have heard from the beginning so that you walk in it. That means live in it so that you walk according to the truth. It's, he's concerned about the practical application of the things that reside in our brains. Doctrinal things, biblical things. Does it get from here into your life? John's concerned with that. He doesn't want you just to be able to be a Bible trivia master. He wants you to apply the truths of scripture to how you're treating your spouse, how hard you're working, for the money that your employer is paying you, etc. Walk according to the truth. And so this walking in truth is something that ought to be done every day by every Christian. For example, we must not just say we believe that God is sovereign. We must actually live out or act like God is sovereign. When things aren't going our way, we must walk in the truth of his sovereignty and lean into our circumstances knowing that God is behind all that is taking place, and I mean all, in order to accomplish his purposes in my life and through my life to you, and vice versa. We must not just say we believe in election, as John teaches in verse 1, notice, the elect lady, and then he closes in verse 13 with this lady's elect sister. We might not just say we believe in election, as John teaches in verse 1. No, we must entrust our neighbors, our children, and our friends into God's loving care. This doesn't mean that we neglect evangelism. No, this means we must work tirelessly to join God in the process because God uses means to bring people, to bring the elect unto salvation. How do you think the elect become believers? Is there a wand wave someplace in glory? All of a sudden, no. Yeah, no, God uses means. He uses you in the lives of your neighbor and your children to bring about the purposes of God in election, all right? In God's kindness, the doctrine of election relieves us from the eternal weight of converting our children. Can you imagine, Christian friend, if it were up to you? If it were and your kids ended up in hell, it would be your fault. Aren't you thankful it's not up to you? Oh my goodness, or your neighbors. It's not up to you that your neighbors come to faith. It's just up to you that you're faithful to the command to share the gospel. That's it. We don't want to be responsible for whether or not someone gets to heaven. No, that is 100% on the Holy Spirit. In verse 1, John addresses the recipients by saying that he loves them in the truth. Did you notice that? His love is based on the common truth that they hold, that they believe. And not only that, all those who know the truth also love them. Verse 1. This means that first and foremost, our relationships with each other, if they are in fact Christ-centered, are based on biblical truth. And you thought it was because you both liked the Seahawks. No. That's not it. 
In fact, if you think that's it, you don't understand what I'm talking about. All right, so listen. John wasn't saying that he truly or really loved them. Look at the verse again. Uh, who I love in truth, he's not saying, I really love you. This is true. No, he's saying the basis of our relationship is the truth. It's important you get that. In other words, truth unites us. Biblical truth creates a common cause or purpose between us. It eliminates distracting elements of our lives together. It keeps us focused on what's important as Christians. So if you're going to tell me that you don't believe Jesus is God or that Jesus never died on the cross or he never rose from the dead or whatever you may disagree on concerning the gospel, a large portion of our unity is interrupted, isn't it? Why? Well, everything that's left, and the only thing that's left is secular matters, like sports or hobbies. That's it. The rest of the world can survive like that, but not Christians. No. We can still be friends with those who disagree about the identity of Christ. We can still watch Seahawk games or Mariner games next season. Um, but our fellowship would be eliminated, our partnership would be eliminated, because that particular person who, who does not believe certain things about Jesus has gouged out the central uniting truth on which we could agree on and have fellowship over. We love everyone who embraces the truth of the gospel. It unites us. This is the great identifying mark of being a true believer. We love those who embrace the truth, right? Next, the next benefit is that truth abides in us. Not only unites us, but it, it abides in us, both corporately and personally. Look at verse 2. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. So in addition to being united by the truth, we know Christ... Um, and his truth is living in us. That sounds a little strange to say that truth is living in us. So let me try to explain it to you. The Apostle John is writing this letter to the elect lady, whoever that is. Look at verse 2, first word. Because of the truth that abides in us. He's writing the letter because the truth abides in us. That truth is implanted in us. How's that truth get there? It's implanted in us by the Holy Spirit upon regeneration. This work of the Holy Spirit is what gives us insight into gospel truth. When, when we realize the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, we believe it and embrace it and become followers of, of the central figure of the truth, which is Jesus Christ, right? That's how it works. You wake up one day and the truth of the gospel makes sense to you. Why? Because the truth has been planted in your heart by the Holy Spirit and the gospel becomes sensible. So recognizing this truth is actually the third step in becoming a Christian. Yeah, recognizing the truth of the gospel is the third step, not the first, the third step of embracing the gospel and becoming a Christian. The first step, John has already mentioned, is what? 
the election of the saints, which happens in eternity past, according to the Bible. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 is one significant reference. All right? God chose you when? Before the foundation of the world. So, election is the first step in you becoming a Christian, and that happened before time began. The second step is the gift of faith and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, which happens in time, just prior to your understanding the gospel. According to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, which is a gift of God. So the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, after you've been elected in eternity past, decides in time to grant you a gift. It's called faith, which makes you able to believe the gospel by faith that he's granted. Then shows up the third step, which we associate the time we became Christians, right? And that is recognizing the truth of the gospel and exercising that God-given faith in becoming a Christian. But your eternal position, your eternal position was determined in eternity past. Everything flow else flows out of that. Does that make sense to you? This is behind the material John is teaching in 2 John. When the Holy Spirit regenerates your heart, friends, he implants truth. We wouldn't be and couldn't be Christians without this truth abiding in us. Listen to what he said in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Who all has knowledge? Those who have been anointed by the Holy One. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. Why do you know it? Because it's been implanted in your heart by the Holy Spirit at the moment of regeneration. When the Holy Spirit regenerates your heart, he also implants the truth. You recognize truth. And I'm not saying that you will all of a sudden know all doctrine and be a Bible scholar. I'm not saying that. John's not saying that. I'm saying you'll recognize gospel truth and you will recognize gospel errors and be able to distinguish between the two. In other words, if the Holy Spirit has regenerated your heart, you will understand the gospel. Then John writes in verse 2 that our knowledge of the gospel will be with us forever. It's a wonderful thought, wonderful promise, isn't it? Yep. In other words, it won't leave. You're not going to change your mind about the gospel. If you've been truly converted, you're never going to say, well, I tried that Jesus stuff. You won't. Because those who are truly converted will always have the truth. Uh, when someone tells me, oh, I tried that Jesus stuff, and I say, you're right, you tried it. One of these days, maybe, if God has mercy on your soul, he'll grant you knowledge. And you'll understand the gospel for what it really is. Trying Jesus out of your own volition isn't salvific. <laughs> Doesn't matter if you prayed the prayer, if you've attended church, if you've joined a Bible study. Doesn't matter. What matters is whether or not 
whether or not the Holy Spirit has implanted truth in your heart and regenerated it so that you will come to him by faith and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So, we must say that there is no way to twist the gospel at all and have it remain salvific. Saving, in other words. What I mean is if the Holy Spirit is the one who implanted the truth in your heart, you'll actually know what is true. Because he did the implanting. You won't remove the deity of Jesus Christ, for example, because you're uncomfortable with a human who is also God. If you do, then the Holy Spirit didn't implant the truth in you because you're believing error. If you remove substitutionary atonement, to give you another example besides the deity of Christ, if you remove substitutionary atonement from the gospel equation because the act of God the Father sacrificing God the Son is somehow offensive to you, then the Holy Spirit didn't implant truth in you and you don't know the gospel and you aren't saved. It's that simple. All roads, in fact, do not lead to Rome. All versions of the gospel are not equal. There is no such thing as saving sincerity. Oh, but my friends are so sincere in what they believe. There are a lot of sincere people in hell. No, only one truth saves. It is the truth of the God of heaven who became man. His name is Jesus Christ and he lived the perfect life he died a criminal's death because he took upon himself your sin and paid what you owed in that minute, in that moment. And then he rose from the dead. And everyone who embraces this truth, the true Jesus Christ, and bows the knee to his lordship are saved. So if you don't like parts of the biblical gospel and decide not to embrace those parts, you're not saved. You may fool yourself into thinking that God really doesn't care about those things, but the Bible is specifically clear on each of these things, and God does actually care. In fact, he infinitely cares. An important distinction here that I want to make in case you're, you find yourself going down this road, which some of you probably are, primary, secondary, and tertiary doctrines are important to keep distinct and separate. Primary doctrines are those that are of primary importance. It's what puts doctrine in that category is whether or not misunderstanding those doctrines lead to missing heaven. If misunderstanding leads to missing heaven, it's a primary doctrine. Does that make sense to you? Secondary doctrine is of secondary importance. It's not primary, it's secondary. Misunderstanding the doctrine in this category is serious, but not damning. It includes doctrines like baptism, eschatology, spiritual gift, church governments, things like that. Misunderstanding these doctrines is serious, but not damning. Um, disagreeing on these secondary doctrines is why there are different churches around the valley. People that believe differently than we do because on these secondary doctrines attend other churches because they teach and believe those doctrines, which is fine, but they're secondary. 
Tertiary doctrines, that is doctrines in the third category, should not separate us. In other words, we can disagree on these things and still have wonderful fellowship with each other, attend the same church and small groups together, um, not be separate. Uh, is it serious to misunderstand tertiary doctrines? Well, I suppose any biblical doctrine is serious, but these tertiary doctrines are way less significant, hence the title tertiary of third importance. Examples of tertiary doctrines would be parental choices in educating their children, the age of the earth, whether or not women should wear hats. And I can see we have a problem with that in this church. Um, or whether men should stay at home and let their wives be the breadwinner. These are tertiary doctrines that don't need to separate us. It's okay if you want to wear a hat, woman, in the church. Go for it. But some people are weary of doctrinal disagreements. You may be one who, who just tires of constant debate over doctrinal things. And you might be one who suggests that debating doctrine is counterproductive. Now, I would agree and disagree with that statement. If we're unwilling to discuss, debate, and defend what we believe about the gospel, then we'll have all sorts of opinions that's going to up up and our solidarity in our church. In other words, um, an all-have-value mentality over the doctrines of the gospel is lethal to the church and dishonoring to Christ and the Christ of those gospel doctrines. On the other hand, <laughs> I think debating the nuances of secondary or tertiary doctrine is almost always unproductive and unnecessary. In fact, the Apostle Paul commanded Titus and Timothy not to do it. You're not supposed to be arguing over tertiary things. We are not supposed to be arguing. Paul said it. Titus 3.9 and 1 Timothy 1.4. Don't argue about unimportant doctrine, Paul told Timothy and Titus. It just separates us, makes us angry, you know. So friends, what unites us is that which abides in us, which is gospel truth. Our love for one another is based on the doctrines that we mutually embrace. If you remove the truth from our common bond, we no longer have a common bond, nothing on which to base our Christian love, friendship, and partnership. So let's get back to 2 John. Let's look at verse 3. I think your outline the, in the parentheses says verse 4. It's actually verse 3 on this point. Truth blesses. Truth blesses us. We're talking about the benefits of the truth unites us. The truth has all these benefits for us in the Christian life. Um, it unites us. It abides in us. And now here, thirdly, what does it do? We see that from verse 3 that it blesses us. Look at verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. These blessings of God, these amazing, important blessings of God, come to us by way of the truth. He, he goes, the, the Apostle John 
uh, goes into a typical New Testament blessing. We see this all over the place in, in Paul's writings, right? These same three words. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you. So let's dissect this verse. And first of all, I want you to notice that the grace of God, the mercy of God, and the peace of God come from God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Co-equal divine persons. Grace, mercy, and peace come just as much from the Father as they do the Son. Just as much from God the Father as Jesus Christ, the one who walked the planet with us. Co-equal divine persons. That's who these blessings come from. But they come in and through truth. Only in truth. So we can say, if there's no truth, there's no blessing. No truth, no grace. No truth, no mercy. No truth, no peace. It comes, these blessings come in truth. Exit truth, exit blessings. So the truth that we embrace concerning gospel doctrines is the vehicle of God's blessings to us. All the benefits of salvation, grace, mercy, and peace, flow through this vehicle of truth to each one of us who embrace Jesus Christ. There's no other way to get to those blessings. God grants grace for our fallen condition, mercy for our sinful condition, and peace for our alienated from God condition. These three things are important blessings to the believer. These blessings are treasures to each believer, and each of them flow to us through truth. And these blessings and truth are inseparably connected. Can't have one without the other. Fourth and finally, truth guides us. Truth guides us. Look at verse 4. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. They're walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. So the benefits of truth for a believer are huge. We've just seen three of them. We can't do without them. Here, finally, I want you to see that on top of all other benefits of truth, it also guides us. Do you need guidance in your daily life? I know I do. And multiple times throughout the day, I need guidance. I pray for guidance. I ask for God's wisdom. That's what it is. When you pray for God's wisdom, you're asking for his guidance, right? Well, John seems to be saying here, doesn't seem to be, he is saying that the truth is what guides us. So the benefits are huge. Notice that John says in verse 4, first thing off his pen, I rejoice greatly. I rejoice greatly. And I, as a pastor, understand this heart that we're reading here. When I hear of people who are part of SVC who continue to deepen their understanding of God, who deepen their understanding of doctrine and theology, who are applying their understanding of doctrine and theology to their marriages, to all their relationships, to their daily lives, it makes my heart glad. It's a pastoral heart that the Apostle John is revealing, right? And so this is what John is saying. We don't know how John found out about the elect lady's children behaving in such godly ways, but he did, obviously. Um, his flock were walking 
in the truth. They were, they were living in the truth. They had taken the truth that they had learned and applied it to their daily lives. It didn't remain up here in just an academic sense. So they moved their intellectual understanding of doctrine into the practical arena of life. The truth was guiding them daily. They're walking in the truth, which means putting one step in front of the other, which we each do every day. When they were confronted with challenging circumstances, they took the truth that they knew and applied it to those circumstances. When they had a disagreement at work, when they had a challenging issue in their marriage, when they had financial concerns, they took the truth that they had learned from, from John and applied it to their daily decisions. They were taking all the primary doctrines of the faith, maybe some of the secondary doctrines of the faith, absorbing them, embracing them, and allowing them to guide their behavior, their attitudes, and their relationships. They were walking in the truth. The truth was guiding them every step along the way. Is that true of you? When you come to a point of decision, whether it's in a relationship or a health decision or a financial decision, what have you? Does the truth guide you? Or are you running to the internet to find a blog concerning your question? Or does the truth of Scripture guide you daily? Are you saturated to the truth to such an extent that it guides your daily decisions? You, you stop short of saying something to your spouse because you remember something about the gospel. Does it guard your mouth? Does it guard your heart? Does it guard your mind? Are you walking in the truth, Christian friend? What a challenge for us to move what we say we believe from our heads to our daily practices. May this be true of us. Let's pray. Father, we desire this to be true of us. We know there are times, maybe many times, that this is not true of us, and we confess that, repent of it. We want to turn from it. We want, in fact, the truth of Scripture to guide us. We, we want to fulfill the desires of the Apostle John here um, for those who are reading this letter, studying this letter. We want to be those who live by the truth. We want to be united over this basic element of the Christian life, the, the truth of the gospel. We want it to guide our daily decisions. We want 
all the benefits that come with possessing the truth in our lives. Well, God, help us, help us think clearly about this. Help us to not get distracted between now and the first opportunity we have to apply these truths to our daily living. Bless us, Father. Bless us as a church. Bless us individually for your glory and for our good. Amen.